A new programmer learns to build applications using data structures like a queue, a cache, or a database. Modern cloud applications are built using more sophisticated tools like Redis or Kafka or Amazon S3. And these tools do multiple things well. They often have overlapping functionality with each other, and application architecture becomes less straightforward. Should you use Kafka for your queue? Should you use Redis for your queue? I don't know. And these applications that we're building today are data-intensive rather than compute-intensive. Netflix needs to know how to store and cache large video files and stream them to users quickly, and Twitter needs to update user news feeds with a fan-out of the president's latest tweet. And these operations, they're simple with small amounts of data, but they become complicated once you have a high volume of users and a high volume of data. And that's the idea of the data-intensive application. Martin Kleppman is the author of a book from O'Reilly called Data-Intensive Applications. And this book is about how to use modern data tools to solve modern data problems. His book includes high-level discussions about architectural strategy and lower-level discussions like how leader election algorithms can create problems for a data-intensive application. If you're interested in hosting a show for Software Engineering Daily, we are looking for engineers and journalists and hackers who want to work with us on content. It's a paid opportunity. We do around $300 paid out per episode. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash host to find out more. Also, the Software Engineering Daily store is now open. If you want to buy some Software Engineering Daily branded t-shirts or hoodies or mugs and support the show. Now let's get on with the show. Martin Kleppman is the author of Data Intensive Applications, a book from O'Reilly. Martin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much, Jeffrey, for having me. Many applications today are data-intensive rather than compute-intensive. Explain the distinction between these two application types. Sure. Um, so I would call a application data-intensive if data is the primary challenge that arises when, when building that application. Um, so that could be, for example, the amount of data, the sheer volume of it, but it might also be the complexity of the data, how interlinked it is, or maybe how fast it's changing, um, both in terms of the data rights, but also the uh, structural changes. And so there are quite a lot of applications which fall in that category. So my background is from doing data infrastructure at internet companies. Uh, so I used to work at LinkedIn and um, the kind of architectures there are somewhat similar at like Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, etc. Um, but I, I believe that actually similar kind of data processing and data storage challenges occur in many other areas as well, which I'm less familiar with. Um, so one area that came to mind, for example, would be scientific data. So if you're a physicist at the Large Hadron Collider, for example, I believe you might be doing a lot of data crunching in order to discover new particles. Or if you're a genomics researcher trying to find a new cancer drug, then maybe you would uh, be crunching through large amount of, of uh, genome data. So I think there's, it's, it's quite a generic term, data-intensive applications, just because there's so many different uh, things that really fall under that category. 
We had this web 2.0 period where there were companies like LinkedIn and Twitter and these companies were getting started and they had to deal with these high volumes of data. And during this period of time, we saw the creation of a lot of abstractions that make it a whole lot easier to work with some of the canonical problems of data-intensive applications. We saw things like Kafka get developed. Obviously, AWS got its start in this period. And now we're in this world where we've got some really useful abstractions that allow us to solve some of the canonical problems. And then, you know, if you're Netflix or Uber or a company of, of that scale where it's like you not only have the problems and the challenges of a Twitter and uh, a Twitter or a LinkedIn, but you've maybe got these new challenges where you've got, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a kind of a buzzword that doesn't really make any sense, but the real-time data challenges. So they're slightly different challenges, but they are a superset of the challenges that came before. So we are in this new kind of new era where not only do we have the big data stuff of Web 2.0, but we have the fast data challenges of maybe Web 3.0. Yes. I, I don't know exactly which version number of the web we're at right now, but <laughs> I think the uh, this, this general idea of new challenges having arisen, like maybe in the last 10, 15 years or so, I think is, is very true. So I, I actually spent a fair amount of time in preparing this book, just going back a bit through computing history and looking at the history of, say, relational databases, uh, which, you know, were developed in the 70s and really um, stayed around for a long time and were really the dominant way of data management for decades, literally. Hmm. And and then suddenly people started moving away from it. And then, um, like, at the moment, you know, NoSQL came up in uh, 2005 or something like that. And... Uh, Really, that was not so much a, a movement against relational databases as rather embracing a much wider range of other kind of storage and processing technologies that had previously been not even considered. And part of that was definitely driven by just relational databases no longer really fitting all of the different use cases, all of the different things people wanted to do with mm -hmm. data. So although they're still super relevant, relational databases are still used a lot um, they're not, you know, they're not the last word in terms of dealing with mm. data. And uh, since you mentioned abstractions, so I, I think relational databases were so successful because they were a great abstraction for the kinds of data that they were designed for. The problem is that now we have things like you mentioned, this real-time data, for example, um, where at least the, the classic implementations of relational databases simply don't handle that well. And so... I feel like at the moment we're searching for these new abstractions that will see us through the next couple of decades. But right now, everything is that there's this explosion of many different technologies, um, and they're all competing for getting our attention. And it's it's really hard to get an overview sometimes of of what technology is actually suitable for what purpose. It is because you know you write about this. The idea that when a new programmer starts out and you're taking your basic data structures class and these data structures are like a queue or a database or a cache and these are data structures with very clear responsibilities, but there are these newer tools like Redis or Kafka, although these tools are now like a decade old, and 
they're less defined in their core functionality because they can operate as both a message queue and a data store, or they might have these varying durability guarantees where it's not as easy to explain the durability or as easy to understand the durability or the consistency uh, policies of them. And so we have these newer data systems and they have some overlapping functionalities. How do the I mean do these it's but it seems to me like these fundamentally make things just easier because usually you know you have something like Redis and you have it doing some small subset of what Redis could potentially do and then maybe in the future you get to leverage additional aspects of of Redis but it's not like um yeah but it, I mean I don't know what so what are your thoughts on how to approach these these abstractions that provide a large and often overlapping with each other set of functionality? I think it's very much an open question, actually. And so what, what I try to do in this book is to outline the different uh, approaches that exist kind of on a fundamental level and which pieces of software implement which approach and then try to analyze how we can compose them together into building more complex applications. But you're right, like if you take something like Redis, it offers an API with a certain interface. Uh, take something like Kafka, again, it offers a certain API. Um, and they're, they're kind of similar in some ways and very different in other ways. And we, most of us simply don't have um, a good understanding of exactly what we're getting from these tools beyond the, the surface level of the API. I think with the in-memory data structures, like you mentioned, like a linked list or an array or something like that, we understand how to deal with them because we've been programming with them for decades. And so, like, you know, for example, if you have an array, then accessing a random element is uh, cheap. It's like order one, but removing the first element is order n because you have to move all of the remaining elements. Whereas with a linked list, it's the other way around. Like, removing the first element is really cheap, but accessing an uh, element in the middle is expensive. And so we've got these, uh, like, ingrained ways of thinking about these abstract data structures that help us figure out which data structure you might use in which circumstances. But now when it comes to these new data tools, um, I'm not sure we yet quite have the language uh, to reason about exactly what we're doing, what we're getting. And at the moment, like you get things like, okay, something writes to disk. Okay, but like when does it write to disk? Does it guarantee that it has hit the disk? at the point when it acknowledges something? What happens if that disk dies? Does it guarantee that it's replicated to another machine? Does that replication happen synchronously or asynchronously? Etc. Etc. And so there's a whole lot of complex challenges there. And um, part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to just put them into a, like a systematic language so that we can even talk about them and compare them. The big O notation for writing to a a data store that's distributed is not as easy to determine when you have nodes dying you have you you have i mean even if the node doesn't even if nodes don't die even if you're just doing partitioning and sharding and replication and you know oh, oh oh but actually you know we want this to be an acid transaction so what's the big o of of making it an acid transaction and these things are uh, not well defined. Um, so let's yeah, talk. I could imagine that maybe we'll get uh, get better ways of uh, reasoning about those findings. Somehow the the right way of summarizing the essence of how expensive something is 
Um, like I made one attempt uh, in a research paper a while ago that was criticizing the CAP theorem. People cite that a lot in the context of building distributed systems. I personally find the CAP theorem not at, not at all useful. Uh, and so I was arguing instead we should reason about whether something requires a network round trip or not, essentially. So how dependent is something on network delay, um, which seems to me like a kind of nice way of um, boiling something down to the essence, because there are some things that fundamentally you can do without talking over the network and other things you fundamentally cannot. And, and so that makes a nice dividing line between different consistency models, for example. But yeah, these sort of ideas are not nowhere near as established as uh, big O notations. So I think it's going to still take us a while to really figure out how to um, best formulate those things. So when you talk about the difference between looking at a distributed system through the lens of CAP theorem versus the question of whether something is going to make a network round trip or not, talk more about the the distinction between those two your your two paradigms uh, yeah certainly so the problem with cap i see it is mainly that the theorem as it's formally defined doesn't actually say what most people think intuitively think it says uh, it's simply a, a different statement and so the theorem that talks about a very specific model of consistency which is linearizability which uh, is uh, i explain in the book in some detail and it talks about a very specific notion of availability, namely availability uh, in the context of arbitrary network interruptions that last forever. And so, for example, it doesn't speak about availability in the context of a network that is interrupted and then repaired again. It only talks about it in the context of a partition that lasts forever. And so the definition of availability in there is also kind of not what people expect because it doesn't take time into account. So it th- considers a service to be available if it responds 10 minutes later, which is not actually what most people would consider available. But that's the definition that the theorem uses. So I, I feel just it, it kind of misses the reality of what people actually talk about. But then if you redefine the terms and say, well, actually, we mean something different with availability, then, uh, well, then the theorem no longer applies. So then you're in uncharted territory again so like if you want to use it as a theorem as a mathematical truth then you have to be precise but people are not precise when they talk about the cap theorem let's talk more about your book you encourage readers to be able to describe the load on their system so in order to talk Mm -hmm. about scalability you need to talk about what is the load on your system that your scalable response is based off of what are some different ways that load can manifest on an application? It depends very much on the application in question. And so, like in some cases, the load might be just the volume of data you're dealing with or the number of requests per second that are coming in, or maybe uh, the number of writes per second. Maybe some types of requests are more expensive than others, so you care more about those. And so uh, it depends very much on, on what you're trying to do. Um, but then once you have some load number, something that you can put a number on, then you can start reasoning about, well, ha- what happens if that number doubles? Um, how do we respond to that? Because then uh, at some point, you'll probably get to the point where a single server can no longer handle the load. 
in that case, you've got to somehow distribute it across multiple servers, or you've got to accept that the thing is going to slow down. And so, like, if you want to keep the performance constant, then you're probably going to have to add resources somehow. And reasoning about scalability is just reasoning about the process, how you can address an increased load by adding more resources. And, of course, that depends on the type of uh, load that it is that, that you're dealing with. But also the structure of the data, what kind of things you're trying to do with it. Uh, and so, really, it's not a one-dimensional thing. You can't. It, it's meaningless to say that something is scalable or something is not scalable. Uh, instead, really, we should be talking about, well, this system can handle an increase in this kind of load by doing this and that. And so then you can start having an educated conversation. We will work towards a discussion of the distributed system uh, architecture for a data-intensive application. Let's start with the idea of the data model. The data model is the representation of how we store and access the data of our application. Some applications use a document model, some use a relational model, Many applications use some combination of the two. How should an application architect reason about the data model of an application? Um, so to those, I would add to those two models a third one, which is graph data model. Um, because I think if you look at the, the three ones side by side, that is document and relational and graph, uh, you see some interesting characteristic differences. And so I'd say the biggest difference has to do with the structure of the data. Uh, that is, you've got some kind of things that have a relationship to each other. And from relational modeling, we know that you can have one-to-many or many-to-one or one-to-one or many-to-many relationships. And the type of relationships that are dominant in your data really determine the type of data model that's best suited for it. And so, uh, a document model, I would say, fits very well if you've mostly got one-to-many relations. That is, so the example I use is, for example, a, a LinkedIn profile, which is, it's like a resume, essentially. So you've got a profile that represents one person, and on that one profile, you have a name, and you have like a, a, a headline, and then you have multiple uh, jobs that you've worked on, and multiple periods of education, and multiple uh, like social media accounts, maybe. And so then you've got this uh, one-to-many relationship between the jobs and a profile. And that is, each job belongs to exactly one profile, but um, each profile may have many jobs. And so this kind of thing you can represent very naturally as a JSON document, say, by just having a, a document per profile, and within that is a list of jobs. And so that kind of thing you can, of course, represent in a relational model as well, but it gets clumsier, especially once you have things nested within other things and you need to represent order in some way. So you then you have some kind of ordering column attached to things and then you need some really complicated queries to try and pull all of these things together or you end up doing multiple queries in application code. So if that's the structure of the data, then just fetching a single JSON blob is great. And also if you have a lot of... Um, data with different fields, depending on where the data has come from or so, then splitting it across 20 different tables in a relational data model may be crazy. So in that case, again, putting it in a just a typeless JSON document might be by far the simplest. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if you have a lot of cross-referencing between different 
objects or call them documents, um, like you might have a reference from one document to another, then actually that starts looking quite similar to a relational model. And very quickly, once you end up with these many-to-one or many-to-many relationships, you end up with something that is essentially a relational database, except without all of the nice query languages. Uh, and then if you go even further towards the many-to-many model, you end up with graphs. So I see that really as a generalization of, of a relational model where really in principle anything can be related to anything else. And so you can you can keep adding to the graph by introducing new types of vertices and edges. Now, in the in the early days of an application, whether it's like a social media app or a SaaS with a front end, um, you know, you often have like a front end web app or a mobile app that needs to interface with some sort of back end data store. And these data stores are growing in volume. The query uh, complexity uh, that the front end might make uh, is it's still pretty simple, but you could imagine it growing in complexity. And there are these different query types that the front end apps are making. It's changing. You have these declarative, uh, this declarative syntax that is growing in popularity in front end uh, web applications. Um, I mean, it's also declarative syntax is also growing in popularity for things like Kubernetes. Um, but and then you also have these middleware layers for querying, like GraphQL, and the mm-hmm. you're just really seeing a growing richness uh, between what we used to call front end and back end. You're getting all this middleware stuff that's that can be really nice to work with and can add some flexibility. Um, and at the same time, these data stores are growing in volume, so it kind of makes sense to build up these different middleware layers that make it easier to to interface with the the data lake. Um, so, mm-hmm. how has the strategy for the you know all basically the the query between the front end and the back end as we get these thickening layers of middleware between these two ends? How does the strategy of a data-intensive application architect change? I think it's, it seems like a really good idea to me to introduce these abstraction layers. Like Something like GraphQL essentially gives you a fairly unified abstraction for a client device to, to talk to some server-side system. And uh, at least for the types of use cases that it targets, it seems to do that very well. And so it, it just kind of gives a, a common pattern for people um, that has been proven in practice. And it allows you to then change the implementations on either side of that interface, either on the client side and on the server side. So you can swap out, for example, one database for another under the hood and still keep the same uh, GraphQL interface layer. So that kind of thing is great for evolving an application. And so I think it's, uh, it's very good to be conscious of the interfaces and how long you're going to have to support them. Like if it's uh, something like the interface between a mobile app and a server, then, well, if somebody never upgrades their mobile app on their device, then you're going to have potentially very old clients accessing the server side. So although you can upgrade the server side easily, that's not the case for the clients. So you've, you've got a long compatibility history to worry about there. But if you can change the storage on the server side independently, then that's a great asset because it means 
you can just start off with a simple relational database, for example, initially, and uh, keep evolving that in the early stages of your application. And then the more you understand about exactly what kind of access patterns you have, what kind of data you have, you might find that maybe some more specialized tools are more appropriate. And you can then still always migrate to those. And you can do that without having to change the communication between the, the clients, uh, that is the, the mobile apps and the server side. And so I think that's a, a great way of building systems mm-hmm. to be maintainable in the long run. We've done shows about Apache Arrow and Parquet. And in these shows, we discussed the trade-offs between columnar and row-based data storage formats. So whether a data set is in memory or it's on disk, you can put it in a row-wise format or a columnar format. What are some guidelines for when people should store in row-wise format or in columnar format? I'd say as a quick rule of thumb, if you need to scan over large numbers of records, um, but you're only interested in a small number of fields from each record, then columnar is better. And so typically that kind of workload arises in analytics applications where you want to do some kind of big aggregation of like some uh, some or average or maximum of some column uh, over some large number of rows grouped by X um, aggregating on, on the values of X. And so with that kind of thing, if you're going to be scanning across 100 million rows, then doing that in a row-oriented format can get quite slow because you just have to pull a huge amount of data off disk. And columnar storage is, is much faster there because it can represent individual columns much more compactly and it only has to read the columns that you're interested in. Um, where the column storage falls down is, of course, if you need to update it because now every single write has to go to lots of different places. And so that's why in most column stores, you actually get a a kind of two-step process where if you write to it, it'll first go to a row store. And then once it's accumulated enough data in the row store, then it'll flatten those out into into columns and merge them with the rest of the columns. So typically, I see the uh, row-oriented data being used in analytics where most of the access is read-only and the access is typically over large numbers of rows in one go. Um, On the other hand, uh, row-oriented tends to be used in places where you have lots of random access reads of individual uh, rows and uh, lots of random writes. And so those are much more the kind of OLTP transaction processing type workloads. There is the data encoding format as well. So there's the data storage format, which is the row-wise or the columnar format. Explain what the encoding format is and what the relationship between the encoding format and the storage format could be. So you mean the encoding that is used physically by the storage engine, or do you mean from an application point of view? Well, so, okay, maybe I'm confused about this because I haven't done much uh, about this I've done enough shows about this to 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 know much what I'm talking about, but like there's I know there's like Parquet and Thrift and Avro, um, and so I I don't know I guess I'm I'm confused about the stuff. Maybe I should have done some more research about these different things uh, beforehand. But what's the relationship between these things like Parquet and Avro and Thrift and the columnar versus row wise question? Right. Okay. So all of those you mentioned are 
formats that store their data in files to a first approximation. So uh, things like Thrift also define an RPC protocol for going over the network. But in, when you're talking about data storage, um, they're a way of taking some records in some format, typically records that conform to some schema, and writing them out as a file. And so that would be used often, for example, in a Hadoop context where like you have HDFS, the Hadoop file system, uh, which stores files. And so you have to put your data in files in order to store it there. So you have to encode it as a sequence of bytes somehow, uh, which is different from the database abstraction typically, where like if you use Postgres, for example, like what you get is a query interface. You don't get a file format. There are files on disk somewhere internally behind it, but actually the format they're in is some kind of obscure binary thing that only Postgres understands. So you can't really go and read the Postgres data fa files yourself except by going through the SQL query interface. So uh, the same is true for many data warehouses, for example, which use columnar storage internally. So in that terms, the um, you, you can have the row-oriented data layout that's provided, for example, by Thrift and Avro data files or the columnar data format from Parquet if you want to encode in files yourself. But then a lot of storage engines from like Postgres on the row-oriented row side or like Vertica on the column-oriented side, uh, they will actually use their own internal storage formats. But similarly, you can group those into row or column-oriented. And if you're architecting the entire application, are you often making multiple versions of the data available? So like you have you you have one uh, copy of the data that is in a columnar format so that it's accessible to large scan jobs, uh, like finding the sum of a bunch of transactions or the sum of uh, all of the age or the average age of all of the users you know you can answer queries like that but then you also have the same data available in a row wise format so that you can get you know all the data about a specific account so you can load a user's profile do you have that data basically copied in two different places yes that's typically what happens um, and so the traditional way by which that happens is called etl so that's the uh, extract transform load process where you have some data that's uh, being maintained in operational databases uh, which will be typically row-oriented stores and so any kind of random access reads from the website or any uh, writes from the users they will go there and then you have this uh, ETL process which extracts the data from those row-oriented databases maybe transforms it into a different schema that's more amenable to analytics, and then loads it into a data warehouse. Um, this data warehouse is, uh, will typically use a column-oriented storage because it's optimized for a different access pattern. It's optimized for a business analyst who will sit there perhaps with like a graphical tool where they can slice and dice the data and analyze transaction history and so on. And so they'll be doing much more this kind of large scan. And so... We see here this pattern of the same data represented in two different formats for different access patterns. And that, I think, is a more general pattern that uh, we actually see across many different aspects of data systems. Mm -hmm. So another example uh, would be, for example, if you need to do full text search on some data, typically what you would do is you have the primary copy of your data, which might be, say, products in a product catalog. 
you'll have the primary copy in uh, a database, which will be an OLTP row-oriented row database. And then you have a copy of that data in your full-text search index, which might be like Elasticsearch or Solo or something like that. And again, you have some kind of data synchronization or copying process by where every time you change the description of a product in the product catalog in the database, you then also reflect that change in the search index so that people can find the new description by, by keyword. And if you even think about it, actually this kind of representing data in multiple different ways, that even appears internally in a database. So in, in any relational database, if you have a secondary index, what you're really saying is, I want to construct this additional data structure on the side, which is typically a B tree or something like that. And I want every time you write to some table to update that index to also allow me to find records with a certain value. That's what a secondary index is. And it just happens to be done internally by the database. But really, it's just another way of saying we're going to take the same data and have multiple copies of it represented in different ways, either sorted in a different way or with a different storage layout. And that allows us to access the data in ways depending on what you're trying to do, like in the case of a secondary index, depending on which column you're searching by. In the case of a full text search index, it's in order to search by keyword. In the case of a data warehouse and a column store, in order to do a large scan of all of those records. And so I just see that as a general pattern of quite often we have a primary copy of the data in one system, and that might be called the system of record or the source of truth. And then we have a whole bunch of different derived data systems, which they take their data uh, as a copy from this primary system, from the system of record, transform it in some way, and then represent it differently in order to satisfy certain read access patterns. So the pattern we have there is the writes all go to the primary storage system, and all of the other systems are derived from it. So the other systems only serve read, re read requests. And, and this 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 even happens on a single machine. Like I, I, last night, I. I saved a file and and then I opened up Searchlight or Spotlight on Apple and I searched for that file because I had saved the file in one application. I wanted to open it in a different one and I searched for it and I was like, why can't I find it? Why isn't it visible? And it was because the search index hadn't been updated. So this kind of lag happens even on a single machine. It's eventual consistency. It is eventual consistency. And, and I mean... Uh, and you can't even blame the you cap theorem. You can't. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> you can't blame the cap theorem. <laughs> you can't like blame the network interruption between the spotlight search index and and your hard disk file system. Like, well, you know, this is a performance. So this is something I, I performance. Basically. This is something I wanted to ask you about because you were talking. You know, you wrote in one part of the book where you were talking about like. You know, we don't have to think about as much about the hardware messing up on a single machine, right? Like, we don't think about, oh, this transistor is messed up, and so we have to watch out. We have to prepare for this hardware error on a single box. Um, yeah. But we do have to worry about flaky networks. We have to worry about flaky clock representations, like our representation of time might be messed up. We have to worry about nodes yep. failing. Um, but presumably, like, there was a time where a quote-unquote single box had these sorts of issues. You know, a vacuum tube burns out and, like, oops, like, it's okay, the, the single machine yep. doesn't work. Do you think we're going to get to a point where 
these types of like the network flakiness or the um, you know the clock flakiness, where these things will be uh, ideas of the past, and it'll be a lot easier to reason about these distributed systems. Or do you think this like the working out the network problems is just something we're never gonna have figured out? Frankly, I think it's fundamental, and we're not going to be able to solve it. Um, so, in certain limited domains, uh, you can take the approach of treating everything as a single system. Um, so, in the high-performance computing uh, world, these are the people who build supercomputers, which are used for like weather simulations, for example. Um, they do take lots of individual computers, like lots of CPUs, lots of RAMs, join them up with a fast network, and treat the entire thing basically as a single computer. And what makes it basically a single computer is that if any one of those components fails, they just stop the entire cluster, repeat that, uh, um, repair that component, and then continue the job. And this is exactly what happens in a single computer, like if your laptop, um, if a transistor decides to go nuts in your CPU, um, well, what you'll probably get is like a kernel panic or some kind of crash, and you know, you'll just reboot the computer and restart again from the last saved state. So you get exactly the same pattern there, but if any fault occurs in any part of the system, then you simply escalate it to a whole system fault and just restart the entire thing. And that works up to a point, but it depends, of course, how, uh, how frequent the faults in individual parts of the system are. And the bigger your system gets, the more likely it is that any one of those parts is faulty. Now, there's a counter trend that over time, probably the parts get more reliable as, like, as you said, transistors are more reliable, more reliable than vacuum tubes of the past. So uh, it's quite likely that that trend towards individual components getting more reliable will continue. That said, we are like approaching lots of strange quantum effects with the size of, of structures that people are getting to with silicon. So, so maybe that's not even necessarily true. But um, assume that we have the kind of single node redundancy um, sorted out. You then still have the problem that at some point a failure will occur. And then if your response to something going wrong is to just stop the entire cluster and reboot the entire thing, well, then um, as soon as uh, any single part of it would uh, goes wrong, you would then have to interrupt service for the entire thing. And that was possible in the days where, um, say, a business works only 95 within a single time zone and then can perform maintenance overnight. But now with things that are connected to the internet, people expect it to be online 24-7. And so you actually never have that time when really you can just take the system down stop the entire thing, reboot it, bring it back up again. Instead, people actually want systems to be continuously available. And so that then implies that you have to be able to tolerate the faults of individual nodes because you have to have the frequency of a failure of the entire system be lower than the frequency of the failure of a single node. Whereas if you build your system in a way that, it, that resembles a single computer, then the frequency of failure of the entire system is at least as great as the failure rate of a single node. So what we can get from uh, being able to tolerate failures is the ability to for the entire system to have better uptime than any single part of it. And that's really, I think, the fundamental thing about distributed systems is it's in some way 
something that we inflict upon ourselves because we want to build more reliable systems. If we didn't care about reliability, you know, we could just treat everything as a single computer, like, in fact, uh, high-performance computing people do, because with the weather simulation, for example, it's actually okay. It's not an online service. It's a batch job. You start it, and it runs for a couple of hours, and you can write out checkpoints from time to time. And then if something fails, oh, well, you just... Start from uh, you just reboot it and start from the last checkpoint, but that's not the case with like an e-commerce online shop, for example, where you have to be processing transactions all the time. You it doesn't make sense there to go back to a checkpoint from ten minutes ago. In dealing with these problems of distributed systems, we're obviously doing replication. So you know whether we are replicating. Uh, to a search index so that we can look up a data, a piece of data uh, more quickly, or we are uh, replicating so that if a node fails, we still have access to that data. Like if you're saving to a, to a database, you know, you want some fault tolerance in case that database node just burns out uh, and you want, you yep. want to still have access to that other database node. Um, so the replication um, issue, you know, that's a canonical thing. Uh, and replication is going to require us to, if across a distributed system, is going to require us to think about the Paxos-like roles of mm-hmm. different compute nodes. Nodes can die. You've got a leader election that might need to take place, and I need all of this to occur while my application keeps up to date and the replicated nodes mm-hmm. are are up to date or uh, up to date enough. Explain how the the challenges of leader election and the, the Paxos-like issues, what challenges can those create for a data-intensive application? Well, it's uh, the attempt of something like Paxos, so consensus algorithms, is really to create a bit more reliable abstraction than what the distributed systems gives you by itself. Because... It's really a nightmare to try and deal with a system where you have absolutely no guarantees about which node is actually alive, which is dead. Are they just temporarily not responding? Are they going to come back again later? Um, did my data get actually? Did did my data get there? You sent a packet there. You didn't get a response. Did it arrive? You don't know. Maybe it just got delayed somewhere. So, if you're programming distributed systems at this basic level, it's really difficult just because there are so many things you can consider. Um, you need to consider if you want to get it right. And so the idea of consensus algorithms like Paxos is to give you a bit stronger guarantee. And so the guarantee it gives you with consensus is that you get some nodes to decide on something, and once they've decided, they won't change their mind. And, you know, that sounds really basic, but even just achieving that turns out to be quite tricky in practice. But at least we do have implementations of consensus algorithms And so it's used in things like Apache Zookeeper, for example, uh, which is then used to often build cluster management things. So that is for a um, database cluster, for example, you might want to ensure that at any time there's only a single primary, uh, a single leader for every partition. And that's important because if you have two leaders for the same partition, then that means they're going to both accept rights and they're going to diverge. And so you've got what is called split brain. And so having a consensus system allows you to avoid this kind of split brain thing just by delegating the consensus problem down to an algorithm that other people have thought about really hard. And the higher level applications can then 
use stronger guarantees. Um, for example, like that they that there will only be one leader at any one time. But still, there's uh, getting these kind of things right so that they really always uh, satisfy the guarantees that you think they do uh, is still tricky. And so I think we still have an education challenge there of just knowing exactly what you can rely on and what you cannot rely on in a distributed system. If I have a large volume of data, I need to partition it. And partitioning is going to keep the access fast. And it breaks a large volume of data up so that it can be spread across many nodes. And then you have this whole process of indexing the different partitions. And you have to look up the right partition and then the right document within the partition. And all of this partitioning stuff is occurring in addition to the replication. I mean, you break a large volume of data into a bunch of partitions and then you replicate all the partitions Describe the challenges of, of architecting a scalable partitioning strategy. Because at a certain scale, like even just the operation of looking up the right partition can be a time-consuming process. It is tricky, um, especially with data that's highly interconnected. So if your data is just key value structure, and you always know what the key is, and you just want to read or write the value associated with the key, then partitioning is basically trivial, because like typically what people will do is use some kind of hash function uh, to map, a, um, map the key to a particular partition, and even the client can just compute that hash function and then look up in a table like, okay, partition 15, I need to contact this, t- this IP address on this port number, and, and then contact the right node. Uh, but it gets a lot trickier if, even if you just want, say, a secondary index, because then if you're looking for a certain value, um, that's, that's, you're looking for the value that appears within a record somewhere, like you're looking for all of the cars in your database that are green in color, then, well, in, the, in one case, either you have the index on the same node as the record that's being indexed. And so in that case, Writing is easy because whenever you update a document, you only need to update the index that's on the same node. But now whenever you read, you have to go to all partitions because like a green card that might be in any of the partitions. So you have to query all of them in a scatter gather kind of process um, in order to find all of the possible occurrences of green cars in your database. Now, on the other hand, you could structure the secondary index the other way around that actually you make sure that all of the index entries for green cars go onto the same node, but now the writes get more complicated because um, now you have, whenever a document gets updated um, to like, or a document gets added with a particular color, then the secondary index for that document may actually be on a different node. So you now have to update that as well. And now you have to worry about like, what if one request succeeds and the other fails? Then your two nodes go get inconsistent with each other and so on. So um, partitioning gets, gets hard in those kind of cases where you want to look up by something that is not just a primary key. Um, you get a variant of this problem with graph structured data. When in graph, if you want to be able to follow an edge in the graph in both directions, well, you've got to be able to look up an edge in two different ways once from the head and once from the tail, which is essentially the same problem as what you get with a secondary index. So um, those kind of um, 
those aspects of the data structure, when you have these interconnections, uh, references from one thing to another or secondary indexes, they make the partitioning hard. And where we're going with this is that whether you're talking about a read or a write, the idea of a transaction is, as you put it, slippery in your book. Uh, because mm-hmm. if you're reading, does that mean that you're reading from the columnar store? Does it mean that you're reading from a cache? Does it mean that you're reading from a search index? And are you trying to read the most up-to-date version of uh, of an entry? Uh, and then if you're writing, like, are you, is the concept of a transaction, is it the right to the uh, source of truth, the up-to-date source of truth data store, or is it right to the up-to-date source of truth data store in addition to the search index and the cache and the other LRU. And it's like, so, so you know, it's like you have to define, if we're talking about a transaction, you have to define uh, what do you mean by the transaction? How many different databases are you talking about in the exactly, sum of yeah. your transaction? And then some transactions are prone to race conditions that might need to be serialized. And, uh, you know, because if you... If you want to be able to look up your uh, how much money is in your bank account, and if you're a stock trader and you're making all these you know trades and uh, you know trades are are being scheduled and then they're going off at at different times when the market hits a certain amount, you want to know an up to date amount of your bank account balance. And in that situation, like you probably want the transactions to that bank account balance materialized view to be serialized. So how do we achieve serialization in a big distributed system where you have these things like replication and partitioning and slippery transactions? How do do you get the serialization down? It's a a really tricky problem. Um, So we do have distributed transactions that can operate across multiple different storage systems, like XA transactions have been around for a long time and a reasonable number of systems support them. Many relational databases do. Uh, if you're like using the Java transaction API, for example, um, that's uh, basically the same as XA. And you can do that uh, connected with message queues, for example. So you can do things like enqueue, or, uh, acknowledge a message in a message queue only if the transaction that wrote the processing of that message to a database was also successful. So you can get this atomicity across multiple different storage systems, um, but it does come at a very high cost. So it, it is possible to um, make these distributed transactions work, uh, but the performance characteristics are, are really poor and also the fault tolerance characteristics are poor because you just need one part of the system to be going slow or be temp- have a temporary outage and the entire thing grinds to a halt. So uh, an approach that uh, I found more useful actually in thinking about these serialization things is instead to think about the flow of data as it flows through a system in multiple stages. And so I mentioned earlier this idea of uh, a primary or a source of truth data store and then other derived data stores. And so you could, for example, make a guarantee that you will only ever write to your source of truth and everything else is derived from that. And now this means that uh, maybe that derivation happens asynchronously, maybe it happens synchronously, you can decide that separately, but 
you know that you can always rebuild your derived data store from the original, from the source of truth. So it's, it's just a purely deterministic transformation process. And that means now that rather than having to do a write across multiple different data stores and have to ensure that that happens atomically, you can actually just do an atomic write to a single data store, which is your source of truth, and then have everything else be derived from that. And now that gives you most of the full tolerance properties that you need, namely that uh, you essentially get atomicity. That is, if you write to the primary, to your source of truth, then that will also be reflected on the others. But you don't get the synchronicity necessarily. That is, um, if you make a write to the to the source of truth and then immediately read from some derived data store, then that might not yet be up to date. Mm. And what I would assert is that actually, in many circumstances, that is okay. And so you can think about it from a business point of view of exactly for which things you need data that is up to, that is up to date to which degree. And you can then make a trade-off. So you can say, okay, for some things, we uh, really want it to be up to date, and we're going to tolerate the lower fault tolerance and the lower performance that comes with having up-to-date data. And in that case, you can do a round trip through your derived data system and essentially treat the write as complete only once it's been reflected in the derived system as well, which you could do by, um, by plumbing several stream processing stages together. Uh, on the other hand, you might actually say, maybe it's okay to just uh, read, a, read a value that might be outdated by up to two seconds, and you're going to monitor how far behind it is so that it doesn't go over two seconds. And that'll mean that occasionally, in some edge cases, we violate some constraint. Like it could be that, oh, accidentally we sell more items than we have in the warehouse, or accidentally you gave you you sell the same seat on an aeroplane or the same seat in a theater to two different people. And that's not going to happen very often, but occasionally it might happen. And in that case, well, you know, you're just going to apologize to the customer, and you're going to send them a voucher and say, oh, sorry, would you mind like choosing a different seat, or would you mind? waiting for an extra two weeks until we've got that item in stock again. And, you know, that's exactly what would have to happen in other circumstances anyway. Like if, um, if you have a warehouse and you know that you have a certain amount of inventory in the warehouse, well, what happens if a worker in the warehouse drops an item and breaks it or a, like a forklift truck runs over it? Well, then you've got one fewer item than you originally thought you had. And so if you had two uh, orders for the last two items, and one of those two items is now broken, well, actually, you're going to have to apologize to one of the customers and say, sorry, it's no longer in stock. And so you already need this apology workflow in a business in many circumstances anyway. And so the dealing with the, this potential serialization violation from accidentally selling the final item in stock to two different people that actually looks precisely the same to the user as the forklift truck running over an item in the warehouse case. To the end user, those things are indistinguishable. And so I would argue there that uh, this, um, this, this case where you really, really require an up-to-date read is actually often more malleable than we might think. So what we need is integrity of the data. That is, we need to make sure that if something was written, it won't be lost. And we need to make sure that 
um, the same writes that appear in one data store also appear in another. We can't be like losing data randomly. That's sure for true. But so you need the integrity of the data, but you don't necessarily need the timeliness in all cases, the guarantee that some value is 100% up to date. Mm. I think quite a lot of cases can tolerate um, a value being a little bit stale. And if you're willing to tolerate that, it actually opens a whole lot of new architectural possibilities that the like the classic view of serializability simply doesn't cater for. I know we're we're up against time. I would like to ask you one more question. Do you have a hard stop right now, or can I ask you one more question? No, okay, go all right. ahead. So, like, I think about if we were doing this podcast five years ago, the conversation we would be having would be pretty similar to the conversation that we're having right now. I mean, what's interesting about lower-level technology discussions as opposed to discussions about consumer technology is that it seems like the predictions that that we can make are are a little easier to make. I mean, if if we were doing a show about consumer electronics, you know, five years ago, probably we wouldn't have been able to realize the importance of video, or maybe we would. I don't know, like like video video sharing. Um, but anyway, like you know, five years ago, we we would have been able to talk about things like, okay, Redis and Kafka are getting big, you know, Cassandra is going to be bigger, Kafka is going to be bigger in the future, these things are getting really important. Um, You know, maybe we wouldn't have been able to predict containerization, we might not have been able to predict uh, how high level the cloud services are going to get, clearly, like, cloud services are just going to get higher level and higher level, and application level programmers are going to be able to deal with these higher level APIs, and and luckily they are they are going to have to not think they are not going to have to think about the slippery transaction problem uh, as much if they don't want to, unless they're Netflix or Uber or one of these companies that is at such a scale where they have to think about these things a lot more. Um, you know, these out of the box solutions are going to get better, um, but you know, what's going to change? Like, what are the things that are going to change in, in five years, you know, um, or 10 years? Uh, what's in the future of these data-intensive data intensive systems? So we, we saw in the last 10 years, I guess, quite an explosion of different tools available. And so, as you said, many of the tools we have now were already around five years ago, just less mm-hmm. mature. And uh, in the five years since then, well, I guess we've mostly matured those tools and learned a bit mm-hmm. on how to use them and how to plug them together and what circumstances or it's like new, to use new which tools tool. in the same paradigm. Yeah. Um, though I think uh, going forward, what I would expect actually is still occasionally getting new tools, but more importantly, um, better understanding of the abstractions for pulling them together. Mm. So I could imagine that... At some point, we reach uh, the kind of patterns for using data systems that might then be like the the new equivalent of the relational model. So as I said uh, at the beginning, the relational model really dominated the data management world for decades because it really figured out a good way of um, exposing data to application developers um, that worked for most of the things that people wanted to do. And now we've grown beyond it, but I expect that we'll still be aiming for finding that right abstraction that allows us to express the things that we want to do in a nice way without having to worry too much about the details of exactly how it's implemented. And uh, so I could well imagine something like that coming along, some kind of um, 
model of of data management, which may it, it will definitely have to accommodate things like real time data use and representing the same data in multiple different ways, like we discussed, like full text indexing and caching and materialized views and column store and row store. It's going to have to somehow accommodate all of those. What what my vision there is really it would be great if we had something like Unix pipes, but for data systems. Like why can't I just say MySQL pipe elastic search and just write that and have it be done? And what that would mean is that the contents of my MySQL database are reflected in in Elasticsearch and searchable there. And like whenever something changes in the MySQL database, then it gets updated accordingly in the full text search index. Like that really ought to be a trivial uh, step. And right now it's not trivial at all. You have to do a huge amount of plumbing to make something like that work. So that's kind of my, mm. my hope for the next few years is that we get towards a point where we can just plug these different technologies together better because we've figured out the right abstractions for making them interoperate in such a way that we still keep the advantages of all these different technologies that are optimized for different purposes, but also we get rid of some of the low-level plumbing that we currently have to do just in order to plug these technologies together. Right. It makes me think again of GraphQL and the middleware flexibility you get there. It, it also makes me think about something like Google Dataflow. You talk to the Google Dataflow people, and mm. they talk a lot about the false dichotomy between batch and streaming it's like you don't want to be thinking about batch versus streaming you just want to be thinking about like am i getting this data and and they have to do some really hard conceptual thinking i mean the stuff that they talk about um in in their presentations the google dataflow people are they have some really interesting ideas around how should you reason about batch versus streaming Mm -hmm. and windowing and that stuff feels like where I mean maybe Google has already got this figured out and they're just gradually un, like unveiling it. But in any case, it feels like uh, you know we're we're just getting started in how to think about these time windows for for different different data sets. Yeah, and and the uh, Dataflow team is doing some really great thinking there, and they're doing that in the domain of analytics. Um, so. I think they're not really caring very much about like how you would build a transaction processing system simply because that's not what they're there for. They're for building analytic systems, which is fine. That's simply their domain. Um, then if you take GraphQL on the other side, that's very much designed for, well, like building Facebook, uh, right. I guess. <laughs> that is, you've got a mobile app which requests some data from a server and then displays that data. But as far as I know, for example, GraphQL doesn't really have a story for pushing real-time updates down to the client. So the only way how a client would find out about an update to some data is just by polling repeatedly. And so like we've got, on the one hand, the data flow model, which is all about streaming and being able to reflect changes to, uh, to data in real-time with low latency and treating that in the same way as batch. And then... You've got GraphQL, which kind of ignores the whole real-time thing. And so, but but then on the other hand, they focus on doing the kind of transaction processing type thing. So I, I could imagine that there's space for some kind of unifying abstraction there, which somehow takes the best from all of these worlds. But I don't think anyone has come up with it. But I think all of these projects are working towards yeah. it. 
And so I think it's going to be an exciting few years. Yeah, ahead. absolutely. And I think on the, not to draw this conversation even further, but I think on the user application side, like the self-driving stuff is just going to push the necessity for bigger, uh, more, because it's like the systems that we've been building, it's like, okay, Facebook, like you need to serve Facebook mobile traffic. Like that's a hard problem, but it's not as sensitive as getting your machine learning models up to date because your car is, you know, could potentially drive you off a cliff if you don't have the up-to-date data and the machine yeah. learning. So I don't know. I, I think necessity will drive invention. Yeah, I imagine so. Okay. We'll see what, what inventions people come right. up with. Okay, Martin. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, if you ever, if you ever have another book or presentation or something that uh, you want to get some some publicity or talking around uh you know you you were a very requested guest and multiple people wrote into me uh requesting your presence on the podcast so you you did not disappoint <laughs> well thank you very much